This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the president and co-founder of the Reformed African American Network, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, what's going on, sir? Same old, same old, man. I'm excited again about this week's podcast and and who we've got on. I think it's going to be a special treat for our listeners. Yes. If you are just tuning in to the podcast for the first time, we want you to go to iTunes um, and subscribe to us. You can also subscribe to us as well on the Satchel app as well. That's a great way to listen to podcasts. You can download that app. We've been getting some great feedback from some people. And Jamar, it's interesting. I got a message from a, a missionary this morning in Southeast Asia, and I won't mention where they're at in their names. And, you know, I don't know how safe that is, but they said they've been listening to the podcast and sharing it with some of their Wait, missionary hold on. friends. Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia, man. Praise God. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely amazing. Worldwide. It blew me away. And I was just moved to thank the Lord for his faithfulness and, and blessing this podcast to reach ears across the globe. So for, th- for those of you who were, you know who you are, and I'm not going to mention your name. Uh, just to protect your identity, but but thank you so much for reaching out to me. That was a a special encouragement to me. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for listening. I was also talking to someone the other day who uh, was up in in actually in in Michigan, where our guest uh, currently resides, it, a, a small town there that most people have never heard of, and uh, he's saying folks are accessing the podcast from there, that there are folks in his circle of, of people who, you know, we wouldn't expect necessarily to listen because maybe they don't go to the same churches or in the same denominations that, that we tend to be affiliated with and they're accessing it too. So we just can't thank our listeners enough. We can't thank um, folks who have supported us enough for not only listening, but also spreading the word. We really do appreciate it. Absolutely. And the reason why we are getting so much attention, getting so much love is that we have some great guests and you have to let the cat out of the bag. Who we got on on the podcast today, Jamar? Okay. Okay. So, so we always try to get, we always do get incredibly talented people who, who have a wealth of information, wisdom, expertise, but sometimes we get that person and it coincides with an important event that's happening nationally. So today we have an expert on Dr. Martin Luther King and specifically his theology of suffering, and it comes at a great time as we record this podcast. We are close to the Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, national holiday. And so I am so pleased to welcome to Pass the Mic, Dr. Micah Edmondson. Welcome to the show, brother. Thanks, brothers. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's a blessing and a real joy to be here. I've listened for some time and I'm a great fan of uh, what you all do on Pass the Mic. And like I said, I'm humbled to be here. 
Well, we're a great fan of your work. You are in in a classic line of uh, uh, theologians and academics who are also pastors and preachers. Uh, Dr. Edmondson is the pastor and church planter of New City Fellowship in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He also earned his Ph.D. in systematic theology from Calvin Theological Seminary. And so we'll be getting into some of his research uh, today and some of his expertise, uh, but he's also married to the equally amazing and incredible yes. Dr. Christina Edmondson, and uh, they have two beautiful children. So, man, I would only take issue with the fact that she is even more amazing. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> you can tell I, that brother's been married for a while. right into I what you to. on that one. That's right, brother. <laughs> <laughs> any look, any amazement that you get from me just is just it's just by virtue of my union with her. Right? <laughs> that's good. I, I need that's to write deep. that down. I'm gonna write that yeah, down. Gonna, that's that's, that's, that's right, the right. new Hallmark card, right that's there. That's it, brother. <laughs> well, Doctor Edmondson, good. that's good. You, you are also the author of. A book that recently came out, The Power of Unearned Suffering, The Roots and Implications of Martin Luther King Jr.'s The Odyssey. And so, as Jamar was saying, we want to talk a little bit about your expertise surrounding Dr. King and, and his impact and his theology. But before we get into that, I'm I'm curious, and I always like to ask people this just for just influence and, and just out of curiosity, but is there a piece of writing, what piece of writing or, or speech from Dr. King has most impacted you personally? I know that's a little bit of a curveball, but you know, and there's a lot to pull from. But you gave us a permission to ask you a little curveball questions. Yeah, so that's right, brother. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. I would say King's letter from a Birmingham jail. That's always uh, the correct yeah, answer. Yeah, yeah. That's that's just a it's such a tremendous, really, really national treasure um, that really encapsulates so much of what King was about and and the the theological foundations of the movement um, and in, in a moment of, of, uh, of struggle. And, and, and actually, interestingly enough, you know, ha, you know it's, it's, in some ways, it's a, it's a kind of a prison epistle, you know, right. written <laughs> uh, from a pastor yeah. to pastors. And what I think that's really significant because what it does is shows that the civil rights movement was not just a conversation between African-American community to the broader American society, but it was a, it was an intra-church conversation, um, that this was uh, an issue that uh, impacted Christians and you had Christians on different sides of the aisle. And I, that's, that's one of the things that excites me um, is I think about um, the movement, the civil rights movement is not just a national movement, but as a church movement. Um, right. and, um, and so, and I'm sure we'll get into those dimensions, but that's, that's part of why uh, I really appreciate that letter. Um, so yeah, Jamar, what, you what know, about me, you? I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> oh man, you put, see you, you're right. There are so many to choose from. It, it really depends. It really depends on what day you catch me, but I am, I am increasingly, uh, reviewing and, and mulling over the letter from a Birmingham jail, because I think not that much has changed, unfortunately, in terms of the relationship of, sort of theological conservatives to more contemporary civil rights 
uh, expressions. And so I think it still holds incredible relevance for today. But what I'm trying to get into beyond that is really actually reading more of his sermons. So less of just the historical analysis, less of the, you know, documents that have made it into kind of the popular culture level and really just getting steeped like like Dr. Edmondson has been in his theology from the pulpit. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's really important, brother. I'm glad I'm glad to hear you say that. I would say that King's letter from Birmingham jail is sort of akin to the to the institutes. Um, you know, Calvin's mm-hmm. institutes. Hmm. Uh, it, you can't understand the institutes without understanding the commentaries. Right. So you have to go back and read Calvin's commentaries through scripture to really understand um, the uh, you know, you couldn't write an institutes unless you had really understood scripture and you understood uh, uh, um what the Lord said through his divine revelation. And so, you know, what you see by the time of a letter from Birmingham jail is really a mature, uh, a, a mature theology of suffering that King is expressing that is rooted in his theology of the cross. And so, uh, so yes, I mean, uh, I would say, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, and I'm not saying you're doing this, but if for, for someone that's listening, I wouldn't make the dichotomy between what you see going on sermonically and what you see him doing in the letter from a Birmingham jail, because everything that King did was deeply theological, yes, and was yes. was based on his understanding of of the cross and resurrection of Christ. So, um, so yeah, and 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 he thought of it that way, you know. It would, you know, I mean, that's you know, when King was out doing marches and and staging protests, uh, he oftentimes had, uh, you know, he had his he had his scriptures, of course, but he also had theology textbooks. I mean, this guy had a PhD in systematic theology and 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 as and literally everything he did was deeply theological and intentionally so and he thought of himself that way. Well let me let me let me ask this again sort of another one out of left field but I think it's important what is your view um if if you're like surveying the scholarship on King of how folks are how seriously really are folks taking his Christian faith um and, and and that question comes because a lot of times I'll see scholarship studying uh, the civil rights movement um, or or civil rights leaders through the ages who are so very often Christian, and yet that fact is sort of a marginal or a supplemental aspect of their of their greater work. So, what are you noticing in the way people are treating? Uh, Dr. King's Christian faith, uh, whether positively or negatively or not at all? That's a great question. Uh, so different things. Um, there are some people who would uh, completely deny um, King's faith um, as if um, his influences were wholly sort of um, sort of social influences, as if uh, what he was bringing to the table was uh, just uh, an American appropriation of Gandhi. Um, but actually, if you really look at um, what King said about himself, as he said, look, he said, I, I got my I got my my methodology from Gandhi, but I got my doctrine from Jesus. Right. And so and so King actually, uh, you know, if anybody that looks at what King thought of, you know, in terms of, of what he thought of himself um, at every level, you know, he, he thinks of himself as pastor theologian um, before he thought of himself as an activist. He mm. uh, everything that he did was from the context of either being a pastor, pastor of uh, uh, Dexter Avenue uh, Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, or 
pastor of uh, or associate pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church in in Atlanta, Georgia. So he always functioned from that pastoral role, and um, and he thought of himself that way. So so you have some people that kind of completely deny that. You have other people who are um, suspicious of his faith. Uh, people who would say, "Yeah, well, you know, he had a faith, but it was a corrupt faith." Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because of the influence of Protestant liberalism on King, um, but even that is, um, you know, I, 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 so King, so in order to understand King, you've got to understand that he's he's actually first and foremost a product of the Black Baptist Church tradition. Um, yes. That's who he was at his core. And uh, he critically appropriated, and this is important to understand King, he critically appropriated Protestant liberalism in order to um, further uh, articulate the black church sensibilities that he had gotten growing up. And so um, so King and you got to think, you know, King functioned in black Baptist context. And anybody that understands the black Baptist church world would know that you could never function in that context if you didn't actually believe the Bible. Yes. You know, if you, yes. you know, because it's, it's a it's a thoroughly uh, 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 you know biblocentric tradition and a tradition that understands the authority of Scripture, understands that Jesus is Lord, loves the gospel, and yet has a very strong social consciousness and understands the impact of the gospel on the black social situation. And uh, so, what you see King doing is saying, "Hey, look, I'm going to take the the good." the good religion that I got growing up at Ebenezer Baptist Church, I'm going to take these Protestant liberal categories that speak to the black social situation, and I'm going to synthesize the two in order to articulate these sensibilities to a broader context. Um, you mm-hmm. got to keep in mind at that time, um, you know, uh, theological conservatives, um, sadly to say, were not concerned with black liberation. Uh, at least white theological conservatives. Right. Um, and so King goes where he has an audience um, and King draws on the sources that he can draw on that were concerned with, uh, with social liberation. So, um, so now, yeah, so, so you had, yeah, go ahead. No, well, we're kind of connecting to that. Can you explain how theodicy then is not just a recurring theme in King's life, but in all of black theology and in black church historically in the, in the American context? That's a great question, brother, because the question of theodicy, I think, is central to uh, to the black church. It's central to uh, really the, the, the black experience in America. Um, the question of um, given given uh, the, the the omnipotence uh, the, the, uh, of God, that God is all powerful and and given the uh, omnibenevolence of God, that God is all good. How is it that I find myself in the situation of suffering? Um, because being all powerful, God can do something about it and being all good. Certainly God does not like the suffering that I'm going through. So why do I find myself in the situation? And blacks have wrestled with this question, um, for since, since, you know, since we, since we've been on American soil, I mean, from the bellies of slave ships, from the, you know, the Southern cotton fields, underneath the sweltering sun of Southern cotton fields, blacks have always, um, wrestle with that that fundamental question, that deep question, um, uh, what we call the problem of evil, and uh, and yet the the amazing thing is is that they have consistently um, 
come out with hopeful answers that and, and, and this is the I think this is the um, the surprise and the excitement of idioms like the God that can make a way out of no way. You know, I mean, only yes, only, on, only the black church <laughs> right, could, could have expressed that biblical truth in that way yes. uh, in America, that, that, that God is the God that can make a way out of You got to think that you got to think about the kind of religion, the kind of faith that could carry a, 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 a person uh, in, in, in 17 80 or 1790 or 1802 or 1810 or 1850 because these these folks woke up every day they were they were 40 years from freedom and they didn't even know whether freedom was going to come right and they lived every day of their lives uh, uh, in uncertain circumstances uh, in painful circumstances in dehumanizing circumstances in which you know, in which which they could they could be raped at any moment. They could be sold yeah. away at any moment. They could be beaten at any moment. They could be killed at any moment. And yet, uh, and yet they found a reason for hope. They found a reason to rejoice. They 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 found a reason to continue to praise God and to continue to worship God. And uh, and I just think that is an amazing testament to the enduring power of the gospel. Um, and and the way in which God can allow uh, His people to be preserved in the most unimaginable circumstances, uh, and 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 to give them hope in the most unimaginable circumstances. So I just, yeah, I think the Black Church is an absolute miracle. Uh, I, I think it's a great testimony uh, to the 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 keeping power of King Jesus. Wow, I love that. It's um, beautiful. I love that. That is so beautiful and so true. And because. Of that tradition of developing theology from the underside of society, uh, from the bottom up in terms of of being on the margins, do you think or would you agree with the statement that uh, African-American, the black church has a has a particular role to play in the 21st century uh, in 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 the United States of of leading Christians. I know that's a leading question, so you feel free to disagree. Uh, but because of that, you know, um, a lot of folks are saying that because Christianity is become becoming less and less culturally acceptable or assumed that will as a church in the United States. Uh, particularly folks who are in predominantly white church settings will have to grapple with and come to terms with um, being on the margins in a way that they haven't done before? You know, um, that's a great question, brother. Uh, I think that Christians who are on the socioeconomic bottom um, have a particular stewardship um, and have a particular witness. I, I do believe that. Uh, this is this is what's oftentimes known as uh, um, the black messianic vision. Now, don't I don't want your view. I don't want our you, you folks who are listening to, to be afraid of that phrase, black messianic vision. Uh, that's just a, that's a term that was coined by a guy named Lewis Baldwin, who's a King scholar that uh, was working at Vanderbilt University as a historian, and he helped to pioneer King cultural studies. He he coined that phrase um, in order to describe um, the long-standing belief that God has laid upon African Americans a particular calling and a particular witness to help Christianize America, to um, to to help to call America to be what it could be, um, to and 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 uh, mm-hmm. and I what I would say especially the 
the black church, right? Because the black church has a particular, uh, has held a particular stewardship of suffering. And so it has a particular witness. And it's interesting because if you look at not just, not just the history of America, but the history of Christianity, some of the most significant moments within the history of the church, even going back to the Old Testament church, um, was when the church was in chains, right? And we look back at these periods and we say, hey, look, this is when the church was faithful in its witness, right? I want you to think about, um, for instance, the Reformation, right? We're, we're coming up here on the 500th uh, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. A lot of times what people forget is that the Reformation began as a bottom-up movement, right? Uh, it, it, began, it began as a, as, as a movement of, of, of oppressed uh, right. uh, believers who, who, were, who, who were fleeing this way and to this place and that place. And, you know, you have folks like Calvin and Luther who, who, who were finding themselves as exiles, right? And when they articulated these great truths about the sovereign grace of God, it was from the bottom up because the Lord had providentially situated them in such a way that and, and revealed it to them his truth in such a way that they were able to long for a big God, a God that was in charge. And, and that's why, uh, as Dr. Carlos says, uh, Reformed theology is the only theology that can bear the freight of the African-American experience, uh, African-American suffering and experience, uh, because it, it's, it's a theology that's particularly suited for for the bottom up reform theology. You know, we go back to the early church before the, before the church had what we might call, uh, you know, access to, to governmental power and authority. Uh, it was a small movement and, uh, and, 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 and this witness was a witness in blood. Uh, you go back before that and, and go back in the old Testament history. And what you'd see is that uh, the times in which the Lord really worked to, uh, help to purify his people and to help to call them to a more faithful witness were times in which they were in exile, in which they understood that they were not, uh, that they were pilgrims uh, and that they couldn't, they couldn't delude themselves into uh, thinking that this place was their home. And so, uh, so in Babylon, you, you see these great uh, articulations uh, of, the, of the sovereignty of God, you know, um, but it, it happens when they were in chains. So, yeah, the black church has a unique witness because of that uh, in America. Now, you know, many people say that they're bothered by this this macro reality. And this, this comes up in when talking about Dr. King, this macro idea of racism. Right. So but racism in and of itself, and, and Dr. King believed this, is, is manifested in innumerable micro realities. So it's manifested in, in day to day interactions, not just in you know, a, a colored only drinking fountain. It's not just in the KKK. It's in, it's in micro realities. What manifestations, having studied Dr. King, what manifestations of racism and oppression bothered King most deeply? And, and I ask that because I think that says something about his theological perspective and what he found the Bible and the witness of Christ to be placing emphasis on. So, so what bothered him most deeply in his day? That's a great question, brother. I would say as, as, um, as racism expressed itself um, through the veneer of normalcy that would hmm. impact the next generation, okay? Some of the most anxiety, some of the most, when you hear King talk about racism and you hear him agonizing over it, okay, he oftentimes agonizes over 
the way in which racism diminishes the self-identity of the next generation. As he thought about uh, as he thought about his children and having to explain to his children, you know, you can't go in, in this swimming pool and you can't go to this amusement park. Those were the things that kind of crushed him the most, because what it did was it, it when he when he began to sort of communicate these things to his children, he he understood that this was kind of this was this was impacting their self identity. This was impacting the way in which they saw themselves, and that was that. I think that if if I were to say what sort of bothered him the most, I would think it would be that kind of a thing, you know. Um, and you know, um, that's something that we can all relate to. You know, uh, all of us who have to raise African-American children in this context understand what it's like to have to fight against images and messages that diminish their sense of self-worth. Man, that is so real. Our six year old last night asked, who is Dr. King? Because they have a day off from school. So he wanted to know. And it was such a hard question to answer to such a young person, because on the one hand, you don't want to, you know, he's not, he's not yet aware of the way that people attach value to skin color uh, or class or anything like that. And so on the one hand, you're like, don't, don't, don't think about it yet. There will be plenty of time for that. Just be a kid. Mm -hmm. But, but on the other hand, Mm -hmm. um, he needs to know. And from a very early age, uh, not only to honor the legacy and and memory of Dr. King and so, so, so many other women and men who who labored and still do for racial justice and equality, but because he will encounter that. And so will he be equipped uh, when that happens? And so I I, I completely resonate with that, certainly not on a a level that that Dr. King was as a national leader, but uh, just from that everyday struggle to to contend with the reality of racism that we have uh, and and the urgency. I think that f- for me describes the urgency of working toward racial justice and equality now so that future generations aren't cleaning up our mess. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I would say, brother, um, that, you know, as I think about my daughter, so I have a 10 year old and a six year old. And, you know, they actually, believe it or not, they're, they're actually deeply aware, not just because their daddy <laughs> studies King, but they're deeply aware. <laughs> they're deeply aware of, uh, of these issues because they recognize that they are not part hmm. of the norm. OK, when they hmm. look at television okay, right. and they look at who's portrayed on television, when they look at the standards of beauty, when they look at when they look at Barbie dolls. Right. And we have to try to. We have to try to search all we have to try to search through through, you know, uh, uh, five and six and seven different, uh, you know, uh, shopping stores to find a black Barbie doll that's got hair that somewhat looks, yeah. you know, African, you know, that's, that's somewhat realistic. Wow. They you know, they they recognize um, that that they're different. OK. And that and, and not just that, that there's a particular value that's placed upon this this uh, this standard of beauty or this. You know, and, and, and so, you know, those things take their toll on on children, you know, and, and also the way in which we talk about black history uh, is so important. I mean, it's, it's, it's vital. And I think this is one of the re- I think this is one of the most important aspects of King's theodicy, by the way, is be- is is because 
if we talk about black history as a history of, of only as a history of oppression and only as a history of struggle, okay, if we make that the overarching theme, okay, then our our next generation will think of themselves only as victims rather than as overcomers. And I think that what we have as African-Americans and as, as particularly as black Christians is we have a history of overcoming. We have a history of, 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 the, of, of, of living in light of the victory that Christ won on the cross and, and through his resurrection. And we live in light of that. And so the, 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 so our story is a story of overcoming. We, we come from a people who survived uh, the Middle Passage. Right. I mean, good grief. We come from a people that survived 250 years mm. of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and lynching and on and on and on and on and on. And right. And so and yet and still uh, you, you still have people who, who are singing the praises of Jesus, who are who are believing in Christ, who are keeping the faith, who are fighting the good faith fighting a good fight. And that tells me that our history is not just one of oppression, but we are more than conquerors through yes. him who loved us. Hmm. And, and I just think we, as we talk about our history, we don't, we don't, we don't make, we don't, we don't, I don't want to make light of the depth of the suffering, but, but I also don't want to give, make light of the glory of the triumph and of overcoming. Um, that, that I think, you know, I think our, our children, our next generation must look at African-American history and be be proud, be able to say, look, these were terrible things that happened to us. But God was good to us and God has brought us through and God has worked in and through us to give a witness to this broader nation. And uh, that, I just think that's a powerful thing and something to really be be excited about. Hmm. Yeah. And, and also to to that point. When you think about Dr. King, he was not just a preacher, as you said. He was also yeah. an activist. He was he was primarily a preacher, but he was also an activist. And and so when when most people think of a godly response to suffering, it is that God will deliver. And and it is interesting because that is one of the critiques that us in the modern context that we will face is people say, "Well, you just don't want to do anything. You just want to sit and take the suffering." and and go and preach and pray and it's kind of this idea that christianity and trust in god is some sort of inherent passivity towards injustice and oppression How, why was king an activist too so why was he not just a preacher but also one who engaged in social act activism why didn't he just preach that's a great question brother uh, because uh king uh understood that the gospel calls us to engage in justice in practical ways. Um, he saw that through the example of Christ at the cross. Because uh, you, you, I, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about uh, when, when Christ uh, was, uh, was arrested by that mob, um, there were a number of responses to, to the injustice that had taken place, right? I mean, this was, this was uh, I mean, I think the greatest act of injustice uh, that the world has ever seen was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The only uh, completely righteous, innocent, perfect human being is 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 arrested on trumped up charges and uh, handed over uh, to the state, uh, a corrupt state, and and crucified, given 
given the worst possible punishment that the state that state mm-hmm. could could exact. That's a that's a real um, and, and even you know and, and even even Pontius Pilate recognized that Jesus was innocent, right? But I want you to think about the responses to that injustice, right? So Jesus is there, and but there are also the disciples, and 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 one response to injustice was violent retaliation, and that was the response that you see exemplified by Peter, who drew his sword when the mob came, and it was and it was Peter. Peter's natural in, inclination was to react, was to re- retaliate with, uh, uh, you know, violence coming my way. I'm going to retaliate with violence. And um, and then you had passivity. You had uh, I call this guy the naked runner. Uh, you know, <laughs> Mark talks about this. <laughs> right. <laughs> Some people right. wonder whether it was John Mark who actually did it. But there was a young man who was so frightened by the mob. And actually, the, the, all of the disciples ended up running away. But uh, this one uh, young man in particular ran so fast, he left his garment behind, you know. And that, I think that's a quintessential passivity. Um, it's recognizing that injustice is coming our way, but it is not having the courage to stand up to it. The only one who had the courage uh, 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 to stand up to the injustice, right, uh, but not through retaliatory violence was Jesus. Jesus exemplified uh, agopic uh, direct action, self-sacrificial direct confrontation and, 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 uh, and, and action toward injustice. Right. And Jesus didn't he wasn't he wasn't Jesus life wasn't taken from him. Jesus was very intentional, deliberate in letting his disciples know that no man takes my life. I give it freely. And so Jesus directed uh, directly, intentionally deli- uh, um, uh, um, uh, gave his life. So. So, yeah. So King, inspired by this example, informed by this example, understood that the way to approach injustice was not through violent retaliation, uh, as, as the black nationalists like, uh, you know, like uh, uh, Malcolm X and, and uh, uh, later on Stokely Carmichael, the black power yeah. movement, would advocate. Um, and it was not passivity like many, in, and sadly to say, in many of, many of black Baptist circles were, were passive in the face of this injustice. Um, but the way to go forward was through uh, agopic, uh, what he called nonviolent direct action. That's all well and good for Dr. King, you know, in the civil rights movement 50 years ago. Uh, but there are still forms of injustices yeah. that fall along mm-hmm. racial lines. And the reality is that, um, you know, we tend to be part of or associate with uh, more theologically conservative parts of the church that in King's day would have frowned upon that form of nonviolent direct action. I mean, what would you say to those folks and, and uh, perhaps even to folks today who might still have issues with uh, these sort of direct action approaches, even if they're nonviolent? That's a great question, brother. I would say, uh, I would say, you know, uh, look at the scriptures. Um, and uh, I would say, look at, the, look at your confessions. Uh, I, you know, I, now, now I'm a part of a, uh, confessional tradition. I'm a Presbyterian and excited to be a Presbyterian. And I'm a part part of the part of the of the all right, all right. I'm y'all on over here. I'm y'all on. Part of the reformed uh, uh, tradition. And I, I've uh, articulated this in other contexts, but um, you know, our our tradition understands uh, the call um, that the Lord has upon us to uh, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but also to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. 
And it also understands that uh, that command, that greatest command is articulated through the command, uh, do, do not kill, right? And, 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 and that command, that sixth commandment, uh, not only uh, forbids murder, but it also calls us uh, to, 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 to love our neighbor, to, to protect our neighbor, to, to safeguard our neighbor against, against um, oppression and against um, anything that would, uh, that, that, that would harm our neighbor. I, I want you all to listen. Just, just, just check this out. I, 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 I teach a class on the, on the, uh, on the Reformed Confessions at, at uh, Calvin Seminary and I, even if I didn't teach that class, I would love the Reformed Confessions. But I, I just want you to listen to just one little piece of the Heidelberg Catechism, because I love the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a great confession. Uh, but one of the things it says is on Lord's Day 40, it's question uh, one, 107. Uh, it says this. It says, is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? It says, no. When God, when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him. And listen to this, to protect him from harm as much as we can. Mm. <laughs> that requires <laughs> yes, that, that requires some proactive action. Mm. It does. To protect him. And I just love how, how, how delightfully open-ended that is you know it, it, it didn't say you know only as individuals protecting from harm uh right that i mean that that i mean if you want to be a you know if you want to be if you want to be a, a really good reformed christian you have to reckon with that that how can we how can i as an individual how can we as a church protect our neighbors as much as we can uh, how can we protect our uh our, our our undocumented neighbors as much as we can how can we protect our uh, our our minority, American minority neighbors, as much as we can. You're gonna get in trouble, Doc. Hey, look, if you don't, hey, I didn't put it in the confessions, and I didn't put it in the Bible. So you <laughs> you take it up with. <laughs> that's yeah, it. That's, that's it. it. So uh, so yeah. I mean, I and and the confessions are simply reflecting the truth of Scripture. They're 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 uh, a mm-hmm. servant to Scripture to simply summarize the teachings of Scripture, and and so we know. That, uh, that that scripture itself is it really calls us to um, you know to take up the cause of the widow and the orphan and, and the downtrodden and the sojourner and, and so um, you know and so we, we all not to be um, we all not to be shy about that you know and that's really what King was doing uh, King understood mm-hmm. that that the gospel transforms people in such a way um, that they began to love other people made in the image of God well and to protect them and to support hmm. them and that's really what he was doing now what would you say as we kind of kind of start to wrap up here what would you say about dr king that you would want people to to discard or what are some of these narratives that you would want people to let go of and then what are some of the maybe little known narratives or not as popularized narratives because Dr. King is lionized now he is definitely made to be this American hero and courageous um, proponent of justice but without having to reckon with the full totality of his views so 
what are what are some popular narratives that you believe are unhelpful that we should let go of? And then what what narratives about King do you think we should we should uphold and recover and really draw attention okay. to? Okay, that's a great question, brother. Thank you so much. I think that one one of the most one of the most unhelpful uh, things that people do with King is they decontextualize him um, and they make him out to be this kind of sort of superhero that fell from the sky, fully formed, that uh, had no context, that just came up with right. these ideas on his own and had, you know, and, and, and when they when they do that, uh, they don't have to reckon with the broader tradition that produced him. Right. And so I think I think w- w- what you have to do in order to understand King is you have to, as I said before, you have to understand that he is first and foremost a product of the black church tradition, a very old tradition. And he articulates and is a culmination of a over 250 year old black theodical tradition, uh, a black redemptive. So he wasn't, the, you know, so King wasn't the first one that that understood that unearned suffering was redemptive. That was something that has been articulated in 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 uh, in in spirituals and, and in slay and it's in the sorrow songs and in in. In the prayers of of, of mm. our enslaved ancestors, uh, that's something that's been articulated for a long time. And so King inherited this tradition, and he uh, he he put it on a national stage, and he was able to dramatize it in such a way that it called attention to something that was already a very old uh, idea. So um, so yeah, so what I would want people to do is is study the tradition that, that birthed King. Um, Get, get a sense of the other figures that were articulating these things. Get a sense of the broader tradition that, that gave rise to him. So that's, that's one thing. Um, another thing is, is that, you know, folks, so sometimes people are victims of their own, uh, their own legacy and their own uh, fame and popularity, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, King is, uh, of course, he's sort of, you know, he's got a, I mean, not, how many of us can say we got a, a, a you know, a, a monument on the National Mall, right? So King has got a monument on the National right. Mall, right? He's he's got his own holiday and where we remember his legacy. And so he's, you know, we, we sort of look at him as and and we sort of idealize him um, as if, you know, um, he he was just this perfect hero that never had issues, right? And when you do that, what ends up happening is when you find out that there are issues with King then it just blows the whole thing up for you, you know, um, and you sort of throw everything out, you know. And I think you have a number of folks that, that are doing that, that are sort of, you know, they find out about, um, you know, uh, the plagiarism scandal or they find out about the infidelity in his life or they find out about, you know, certain Protestant liberal influences in his life. And they say, well, you know, I can't use this guy anymore. You know, I can't look to him as a source anymore. And uh, that's, that's, that's really sad. Uh, because, you know, all of us have issues, you know, and I'm not making light of his issues, but I'm saying you name me a Christian hero that doesn't have issues and not just issues, but deep issues. Right. You know, uh, right. and I mean, we could I'm not you know, it's not my burden here to, you know, call out, you know, people's skeletons in their closet and drag out people's dirty laundry right now. I'm not going to do that. But you go checking out some of these folks that are really um you know, uh, idealized in Christ, certain Christian circles, and you go digging enough, and you'll see that they had some major issues. But you know, the thing is, is that the Lord can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. 
You know, the Lord, the Lord can, the Lord uses imperfect vessels to complete his perfect work. And he's always done that. You know, he's, I mean, you know, with, you know, we know that King David was an adulterer and a murderer, right? I mean, Noah was a drunk, you know, uh, Moses was a, you know, he was a, a fugitive from justice. You know, mm. I mean, we had, we had, mm. we, I mean, you name me somebody and, and, and there's a reason for that. You know, the Lord let all, let us know time and time again that, that he does it this way so that we wouldn't look to any of these people as saviors so that we would look to the one, the one Oh, the only savior, the only one that that got it perfectly right. There's only one who's perfect. There's only one who had no issues. There's only one who always spoke well and did all things well. And thank God that his life speaks for us. So, uh, and not King's life, right? So, so, so yeah. So I would say, you know, uh, don't try to idealize King. You know, um, recognize that he was an imperfect servant that served a, a, a perfect God, and uh, and take the, you know, eat the meat and spit out the bone. Let me end with one very practical question. So each year we celebrate the Martin Luther King National Holidays, a federal holiday. So many schools are closed. Businesses are closed. What are some, uh, you think, um, appropriate ways to celebrate the, the Martin Luther King Jr. National Holiday that would honor his legacy? Mm, great question, brother. I would say find ways to offer worship to the one true God. Because if anything, because King wouldn't want you to just march. You got to think about this: that a lot of these, a lot of the protests began as prayer meetings, and what you need to, we ought to be praying, and we ought to be worshiping the Lord, and we ought to be immersing ourselves in the gospel that empowered King's activism, and and in light of that, and empowered by that, we ought to go out and we ought to seek to serve our neighbors well and love our neighbors well, um, and so. You know, there, there are a number of, of, uh, of movements, um, of ways that we can get involved in trying to protect our neighbors and trying to uh, help promote the cause of justice in our land. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, and, and if I start calling them off, then, you know, I know somebody's going to take issue with what I'm saying. So I don't want to necessarily just say, but, you know, there are ways, there, there, there are lots of, uh, there are lots of, of movements out here. Uh, I think for instance, I will call one in particular, the and campaign, uh, and, 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 and others that are thinking of that are, that have as part of what they do, a commitment to nonviolence. Right. And I would say that, uh, you know, anybody that's thinking about uh, King's legacy and, and trying to continue the struggle for freedom, cause it's a continued ongoing struggle, uh, should get involved with uh, with either a nonviolent movement or a nonviolent cause that is promoting justice in our land, and try to find practical ways uh, to do good to your neighbor. You know, go go across the aisle. Uh, you can go across the economic aisle. You can go across the gender aisle. You can go across the racial aisle. You can go across the religious aisle to find ways in which you can serve your neighbor and promote their well-being. So that's definitely what I believe would honor King's legacy. Dr. Micah Edmondson, thank you so much for joining us here on Pastor Mike. We really appreciate it. God bless you. Thanks a lot, brothers. 
To keep up with Dr. Micah Edmondson, you can get his book, The Power of Unearned Suffering, The Roots and Implications of Martin Luther King Jr.'s The Odyssey. Check that out. Support him and the work that he is doing. Also, you can support Rand Network by following us on Twitter at Rand Network and the show at underscore pass the mic. Uh, We also want you to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, and also subscribe to us on the Satchel app. And always remember, you can join and continue these conversations by going to the Pastor Mike private Facebook group. There are thousands of people in that group. I'm not exaggerating, uh, cross-denominationally, cross-racially, cross-generationally. And we're working through these issues continually. Some great information and resources are given out there. And until next time, thank you guys for joining us, and we'll see you soon on the next Pass the Mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y.com. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.